five seconds to submergence, submergence deep into the absurd. episode number 27 with Dr. K. Brad Ray. He is a professor of philosophy at Ohus University. Did I say that right that time? Yes, you did. All right, good. <laughs> so that's in Denmark. Yes, it is. So what's it like living there? It's great. Yeah, it's a change. I'm a Canadian citizen, but uh, I lived in the United States for 15 years. All right. So, and then I've been here in Denmark since uh, 2017. Did you study philosophy in the United States? No, I studied philosophy in Canada. So I did my uh, bachelor's degree in, uh, at the University of Toronto and did my MA and PhD at the University of Western Ontario. All right. That's awesome. So... So what you got you into all that? What made you decide, okay, I love philosophy. I want to <laughs> start studying this. I want to be a philosopher. Okay. After high school, I originally went to an art college. So Ontario College of Art, which is in Toronto. And I studied graphic design. And I started a career in graphic design. And one of the things I was struck by was how volatile the business is now uh, unstable a career is so I was seeking something more secure than graphic design so I thought perhaps philosophy <laughs> no I, then I, I was just studying part-time and you know and uh, was ready just for a change so yeah and I find philosophical questions interesting so do I I guess that's why we're both here right I guess <laughs> cool so, so I was looking through your research and I have a few questions for you and then uh, feel free to go on a tangent if you'd like. Okay. So, um, so you kind of study epistemology and one thing that you do with that in the philosophy of science is there's this thing called the anti-realism realism debate. And I want to know what that is. Okay. Uh, that's a good question. There's actually many debates. The, I'll walk you through a bit of the history and starting with them, there was a debate of sorts involving astronomers in around Copernicus's time about whether the aims of astronomy are merely to generate models, planetary models for predictive purposes. So it's an instrumentalist view, which would be classified as anti-realist or whether the aims of astronomy are um, cosmological, like, you know, you should be aiming to describe the cosmos as they really are. And uh, so that was a debate, one version of the realism, anti-realism debate. And it surfaced again, a, a similar debate around 1900 between uh, Max Planck and, uh, um, Ernst Mach about the reality of atoms, whether uh, we have reason to believe atoms are real or whether they're just 
convenient theoretical entities posits uh, to aid us in our reasoning. Um, then in the 60s, early 60s, late 50s, uh, philosophers got engaged in the realism, anti-realism debate. And that debate concerned how to understand theoretical language. Do we, the realists were arguing that we should interpret theoretical language literally. That is, uh, the, the purpose of our theoretical language is to describe the world, the unobservable aspects of the world as they really are. Whereas the anti-realist is alleged uh, to say that uh, the theoretical vocabulary can be reduced or uh, to uh, claims about observables. It's not clear any philosopher held that view. It was a view attributed to scientists, in particular people associated with the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. Um, now the contemporary debate that I'm engaged in is really began around 1980, early or late 70s, 1980. 1980 is a good date to pick because that was the year when Van Frossen published Scientific Image, which revitalized anti-realism. It was a, his constructive empiricism was a uh, first uh, vigorous attempt to advance an anti-realist position. And then in 81, Larry Loudon published a very important paper, The Confutation of Convergent Realism, where he, in a sense, uh, challenges claims or the inferences realists make from the success of science to either the truth of our theoretical claims, our claims about unobservables, or uh, claims of reference that uh, the theoretical posits that talk about that, uh, the, the theoretical posits, the unobservables, uh, are as our theories say they are. So he challenged these claims uh, of, um, where realists make an inference from the success of science to some sort of realistic interpretation of uh, these claims. Now, <clears throat> the way I understand the realist, anti-realist debate, or <laughs> I guess one of the things I'm recommending is that um, we should understand what divides realists and anti-realists now is whether the, the anti-realist is saying we should expect future developments in science to involve accepting theories that are fundamentally different than the theories we currently accept. That is that describe that uh, posit the existence of things that are fundamentally different from uh, the sorts of things that are posited by the theories we currently accept. Now, the realist is denying that. They're more or less claiming that changes in science would be modifications of our current understanding rather than fundamentally, a fundamentally different sort of vision of reality. So that's the realism anti-realism debate uh, today, I guess. Yeah. So it seems to me that the anti-realists are a little bit more realistic. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> yeah.
yeah, I think what they are is uh, attuned to uh, the, in a sense, the developments of the his in the history of science. There's a long history of science that supports this idea that uh, no matter how good we feel about our theories, uh, there, or no matter how confident we feel about them, uh, they're prone to be um, overthrown in the future. Now, I don't think the anti-realists should just base their anti-realization on um, this historical type of argument. I also think there's logical considerations. And this is most pointedly put by Van Frossen with the argument from the bad lot, which uh, basically draws attention to the fact that when we make an inference to the truth or likely truth or approximate truth of our current theories on the basis of predictive and explanatory successes. That what we're failing to do is take a, into account the fact that like we're, we're merely choosing the best of the theories we've got so far, the best of the ones we've developed. And what Van Frossen raises is the possibility that we might be choosing the best of a bad lot. That is to say, we might be choosing from a set of theories that doesn't contain the true theory. And this is always gonna be hanging over us. And this is not just some sort of um, logical possibility. Uh, in fact, this is what we learned from Kyle Stanford's argument, uh, the, uh, the new argument uh, from unconceived alternatives. And uh, we, we should just realize that we only ever consider those theories that have been developed to date. And that's a very restricted set. It, it, you know, it's just, it, on reflection, we should all realize that. And usually scientists are really choosing between one or two or possibly, like or two or three or possibly four well-developed alternatives. So they're really choosing from a very small set of possible theories. And, uh, this warrants a certain skeptical attitude. So are you convinced now? Uh, yes, yes. I think I'm definitely on the anti-realist side. Uh, however, I do know that, that science, although it might not be accurate conceptually, it is for the most part accurate on a... Uh, um, a practical basis so far as we have computers and cars and there's certain things that we learn from science that allow us to build these things and at least interact with the world but they're not true on a conceptual basis yeah uh-huh yeah no and the anti-realist does not deny the um six the extreme success of science mm -hmm. with respect to our understanding of observables or the phenomena. So, and they don't deny that we're making advances, but what they're trying to draw to people's attention is that these developments in our knowledge there are not tied in a systematic way to developments in our mm. theoretical understanding. And uh, 
even though theory may open up new avenues for us, it's not clear. Uh, it warrants us drawing the conclusion that what our current theory tells us about reality is sort of the final, the final story on it. And uh, it, we should expect, as I said at the beginning, that our current theoretical understanding will be overturned by a theoretical understanding that gives us a fundamentally different picture of reality. You know, I'm, I'm not religious. And generally, I look at the Big Bang Theory, and I'm like, okay, you know, that makes sense. But, but as I've gotten older, I'm thinking, okay, well, let's think, what all could happen in 13 billion years, that could make us at now on this point on this spec, this rock, to think that that is really the case, right? I mean, in a hundred years from now, they're probably going to come up with something else. Yeah, it's possible. And again, a lot of these issues, personally, I won't weigh in on because I just don't know enough of the science. Mm -hmm. But uh, it certainly warrants skepticism on my part. Or at least, and by skepticism, I just mean that not the denying that it's true, but the withholding judgment. Mm -hmm. The uh, withholding judgment, and it may very well warrant withholding judgment on the part of the scientists who are more aware of the data. But um, I sort of avoid weighing in on particular scientific controversies unless I've read a fair bit about them. Yes, uh, because I think uh, we're philosophers in particular. Philosophers, because they've and many of them yearn to talk about these things. Uh, I think they over they get overconfident about mm -hmm. uh, such claims. I had an exchange in, in the uh, book symposium on my book that was published in Metascience with uh, Peter Vickers. And Peter Vickers gives these examples about talking about our, our knowing the structure of the center of the earth. And, you know, in the past few years, there's been numerous articles in science, the journal Science, that with titles implying we're learning something new and fundamentally different about what we thought about the center of the earth. Like, you know, so I just think these things are, are uh, far less settled than people like to think. And uh, it, it, so uh, this warrants a certain anti-realist attitude. Mm. That's because they're unobservable. Yes. Uh -huh. And uh, with that said, I mean, there's lots of things that are going to continue being unobservable because we just don't have the the uh, the tools necessary mm -hmm. to observe them. Yeah. You know, uh -huh. we can't travel back in time 13 billion years to see the big yeah. thing, right? Or we can't, you know, go yeah. to the center of the earth. And if we did go to the center of the earth, what if? because we went there, it changed. Yes, uh -huh. no, no, these are, these are the types of considerations that uh, play into, that support an anti-realist stance in science, in philosophy of science and science, yeah. So that kind of brings me to my next question. I know you're not a biologist, but mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of irrelevant here. We're just speculating. So, um, 
do you think humans could ever develop the tools to see all the unobservables? Or do you think um, there's going to be a limit to our technological advancements, uh, a limit to our biology? Because there's this, this analogy of, say, the, the slug, right? The slug's rolling along its way, and then the human waves its hand in front of the slug, and the slug just keeps going. It doesn't even notice us, yeah. right? So there might be organisms out there that could be doing that to us, right? Yeah. They could be waving our hand or their <laughs> hand, you know, in air quotes, uh, in front of us and we don't even know it, yeah. right? So and we're all slugs. I follow you. And I think, yeah. you know, and we're all slugs. Uh, you know, I have, a, I have a view of theories insofar as, you know, I it, it, rather insofar as I have a view of theories, what I think theories are, are partial representations. So, and what that means is they only get at some things and not others. That's what makes them useful, that they focus our attention on some things and then we block out many other things. So uh, I think it was Klein talked about the torrential sensory input we we have from the world it's overwhelming we have to cut through it all and the way we do that is sort of narrower vision and that's what theories are good at doing they focus us our attention focus our attention on some salient features and lead us to disregard others now uh, the price we pay for that is that our understanding that we develop, our theoretical understanding is only gonna be a partial representation because it's cut out all those things. But that's a trade-off we have to make to sort of understand the world. We have to set limits to what we're gonna aim at. And uh, in that sense, I think uh, to come back to your uh, picture, we're, forcing ourselves in a sense to be a slug of a certain sort. So uh, there's, there's no other way to proceed. So this is why we should expect every theory to sort of run its course, because at one point we're gonna be asking questions with the tools, the conceptual tools provided by the theory that exceed its abilities. And uh, then we're gonna be ready to move on to a new theory. So it's a sort of scientific evolution. In a way, yeah, in a way. Mm -hmm. hmm. Push from behind. Yes, yes, because the, the strongest theories survive and then those theories then lead to us developing better ones over, mm -hmm. over time. I mean, guess maybe not better, but different and perhaps better i'm not sure yeah yeah one way they're better is like in one way we we obviously change the world profoundly with advances in science i mean the examples you gave earlier the technological advancements we're making a new world when we live with new technologies like even this technology we're using now you know it wasn't a reality in the 1920s. So uh, we're living in a different world as a result. But our knowledge of observables is sort of amassing. Now we lose some along the way. That is, we forget some. 
but uh, we seem to be making progress there, but it is not, uh, it doesn't bring with it, or it's not accompanied by uh, an advance in theoretical understanding. So you wrote this paper, it's a, uh... It's how is a revolutionary scientific paper cited the case yeah. of Hess's history of the ocean basins? Yeah. So what was that about? Okay, it's a foundational paper in the plate tectonics revolution. It was written in the early 60s. I think it was 63, 62. And um, what I want to do was examine the citation patterns to this paper as an example of a paper that contributed to a revolution, in part because a geologist, uh, Menard, had written a, who was a contemporary of Hess's, had written a book chapter where he suggested that, and he was writing in the in the early seventies that he expects that Hess's paper will be cited like other papers. And there's a good, like a sort of well-cited paper in the sciences, uh, increases in citations and peaks, usually between five and 10 years after it's published. And then it, the citations to it just drop off. So I wanted to see, is that what's gonna happen? And he predicted the citation peak to be, you know, within that range. And I wanted to see, is he right about this? Well, in one sense, he was right because the peak was there. But what we found is the paper began to be cited a lot later. And part of the reason it began to be cited a lot was because of its role in the revolution. And it wasn't just cited by geologists because it wasn't being cited for its contribution to geology. It was being cited as an object of study for people in the in science studies, so in history of science, sociology of science, and philosophy of science, people were looking at the paper, citing it as uh, something worth looking at for that purpose. So this sort of altered its citation trajectory. It made it abnormal. And what I suspect, and this is an empirical question, which I'd like to delve into at one point, is that other revolutionary papers have a similar fate. They don't follow the typical citation trajectory of a typical contribution to science, what Kuhn would call normal science. But what they do is uh, get picked up and, and cited because they become objects of study uh, because of their role in the revolution. So that's what I, I found there. Uh, that's just part of my, I, I do this uh, empirical work in scientometrics and it was just published in the journal Scientometrics and Scientometrics is just the quantitative studies of science. And uh, a lot of the studies are citation studies. Um, but I do that in part to sort of keep my foot in, in science, like to be doing science and uh, I always learn a lot when I do those, like, you know, because you run into sort of logical problems that scientists are apt to run into. Mm -hmm. 
so essentially um these revolutionary papers they're cited at first because people are actually literally studying the the subject matter of the paper and then yes. over time that kind of diverts to people citing it because of what the paper did yeah and then even in the case in this case um it's now entered a cycle where like it's 40th anniversary there'll be a flurry of citations to it because even geologists will revisit the paper. So they might have a symposium and say, you know, 40 years after Hess's, you know, paper on ocean basins, you know, so they start reflecting on the development of their discipline with respect to that paper. Most contributions in science will never be subjected to such scrutiny or be given such honor. Uh, so, uh, these, these important papers, they're interesting that way. Now, I want to emphasize I've only completed an empirical study with this revolutionary paper. I've done a similar study with, or I've noted similar data with respect to Einstein's papers, uh, a study I did with uh, Lutz Bornman, an information scientist. Uh, we were looking at citation peaks in philosophy and what papers or books caused citation peaks. And what we found was uh, Einstein's 1905 papers are responsible for a citation peak, which is weird because there's nothing, they're not being cited because of their philosophical insight. They're being cited because they're, they become objects of study in philosophy of science that, you know, people study that, you know, the, that, period in the development of physics and they look at Einstein's papers and they cite them, uh, but they're not citing them and contributing to physics in doing that. They're looking at them as historical artifacts. Uh, so um, that's what's happened with the Hess paper as well. Well, it is a historical artifact. It is, it is. But I mean, there's many, many other papers that just, uh, once they've reached their citation peak five or 10 years, after publication, then you know they're they get the occasional citation every now and then, but uh, they really don't uh, enjoy such revisiting or scrutiny. And even you, I guess, cite those papers. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh -huh. So now, uh, so I have some questions on uh, on epistemology yeah so so i've heard the term social epistemology mm -hmm. and you talk about individualistic epistemology and i want to yeah. know what that is and what the difference is between social and individualistic yeah it's a good question and i'll say I've been asked a few times to write uh, pieces for um, handbooks and what have you on social epistemology. And one of the first things I say is it's a very diverse and fragmented field. So there's not a straight answer to your question, which makes it a very good question in a way. 
what social epistemology is, is any sort of epistemic, it involves any sort of epistemic study or study of, uh, with epistemological relevance that looks at social institutions, social practices, or anything that's non-individualist. For example, entertaining the possibility of um, collective agency, collective belief, collective rationality. So anytime you sort of go above the level of the individual in the mind and raise an epistemological question, that would be part of social epistemology. So it's a very, very uh, wide ranging field. And there's a wide array of methods now employed, including uh, historical studies, lab studies, uh, uh, game theory, computer modeling and what have you. So there's all sorts of ways of studying this stuff. And um, I think the field is enriched by that, but I also think it's too early to look for some sort of um, sort of unifying theory or what have you in, in uh, social epistemology. I'm not even sure that should be an aim. In fact, when I identify my own work in social epistemology, I often qualify and say, I work in the social epistemology of scientific knowledge. So I emphasize I'm strictly concerned with scientific knowledge, whereas other people have interests that are concerned like the public at large, or like there's a lot of um, work being done on how, you know, responding to the media and learning from the media and what have you, or even Margaret Gilbert's work, some of her work on collective intentionality where she's talking about small groups forming plural subjects and uh, capable of knowledge, belief in knowledge. Um, she's not so concerned with science, whereas I'm, I would say I'm narrowly concerned with science in part just as that's my research focus. So, so yeah, cause I know I was looking through some of your papers and there was one where you were arguing that that um, that beliefs form from the individual and someone else was arguing that no beliefs form from uh, small groups yeah and that doesn't really make sense to me because you know it's usually that one uh, eccentric character that comes up with new things right that the whole group then believes so I'm not quite sure which paper you're referring to. Um, I have, um, I have engaged in a debate about whether groups are capable of having beliefs that are irreducibly the be the, the belief of the group. So, and that's a debate that um, numerous people are involved in. Margaret Gilbert and. Christina Rowland, for example, defend a view uh, where they believe that 
groups truly believe, that is to say they are capable of having beliefs that are not reducible to the beliefs of the individual members. I think groups have views that are not reducible to the views of individual members, but I do not believe they're appropriately called beliefs for reasons that I get technical, but they amount to differences between belief and this sort of other notion called acceptance. And uh, I think groups are capable of accepting views. And I'm not the only one in this camp. Uh, we're sometimes called rejectionists because we reject that view. I think we should have been called unbelievers because uh, that's a catchier title. But the basic idea is that we think groups can have beliefs, groups can hold views that are irreducibly the view of the group, but they're more appropriately classified as instances of acceptance, where acceptance involves sort of taking something as true, but it may be for pragmatic reasons. So you can even just accept something you don't, you truly don't believe is true. It, you really don't believe is true because you're accepting it for the sake of an argument. You're accepting it in science, for example, you might accept something and pursue it. So Larry Loudon talks about this, uh, taking a stance toward a hypothesis that, that you're, you're pursuing a hypothesis. So you accept it and work with it and see where it takes you. So, which doesn't require belief, which is, Belief really does involve uh, a conviction that the proposition or view is true. And uh, I think what groups do is, is not aptly characterized that way. When groups have irreducibly collective beliefs or collective views. So it's kind of you know, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, you know, they have a set beliefs, right? You know, they they have written down a certain set of values and, mm -hmm. you know, a platform. But yeah. the individual who is a part of that group, uh, they will have beliefs that may stray from what the yeah. group's beliefs in, but they accept whatever the beliefs are that are uh, foretold by that party. Yeah. And when they're working as a member of the party, they have obligations to sort of hold, like hold forth or to, to sort of advance in a sense, the views of the group as a member of the group. Now, there might be forums in which they can voice their dissent, but it would be very strange if you heard Biden, for example, saying, you know, this is the view of the Democrat, of the Democratic Party. I don't accept, or I don't believe it, <laughs> or I don't accept it. Like, you know, in, when he's standing up there representing the party, he, in a sense, incurs these obligations. In this sense, my view, like to this extent, my view owes a lot to Margaret Gilbert's plural subject view. So I, I'm very much in line with her view. Where I dissent is uh, where, uh, it, when it comes to calling 
to characterizing what these what the cognitive state is of the group of the group and the individual in the group uh, that uh, holds these views. She would insist sometimes they're beliefs, and I would insist they're never beliefs. They just involve acceptance. Hmm. Collective so maybe, acceptance. So maybe the key to world peace is uh, getting people to maybe deny their group beliefs a little bit every now and then. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think I'm too modest because of my anti-realism to uh, uh, even guess what the key to world peace is. <laughs> uh, so. so when a group has these beliefs, is that what collective intentionality is? That's one aspect of collective intentionality. There's many aspects. The part I focused on is this holding views. I mean, there's collective actions and what have you, but I'm interested in this sort of view holding. And I'm especially interested in it in the context of, for example, scientific publication, where most, like in many fields of science, uh, chemistry, for example, 95% of the articles published are co-authored. Whose view is it? Hmm. So if you and I publish a paper in chemistry, is it your view? Is it my view? Or is it, um, is it more aptly described as a view of the collective form by us working together? And that's my view on the issue, is that it's more aptly characterized that way. Now, the two-person case is, is, is not necessarily the typical one. As you make our group larger and larger, it becomes obvious, first of all, that we're gonna develop cognitive capacities and knowledge that we individually we don't have. So in a sense, views will emerge, call them beliefs for the moment, proposition. We'll make inferences based on are pooling our knowledge together that none of us could make on our own. And in that sense, I wanna say this, the fact that we've got these emergent cognitive capacities, emergent views uh, arising in these situations suggests that there's probably an emergent subject whose views these are. Now, each of us individually might adopt the view. Like once we finish writing the paper, you might say, and that's my view too personally, but you don't have to. And in fact, you might say, well, I agree with 95%, you know, there's <laughs> some of it I don't accept, but I had to sort of go along with it. So that in itself indicates there's something acting on you, sort of bigger than you. Because <laughs> uh, you're having, you're letting your name sort of stand on the paper. Uh, so, um, that's the, it's, it's these very concrete practical applications of this collective intentionality that I'm interested in, in, in science in particular. Yeah, because I guess when you're writing a paper with someone else, there's a sort of compromise that uh, goes on if you don't really agree with everything that you've written. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, that's yeah. kind of how it is with any project, right, that you do with someone. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I like Margaret Gilbert gives examples of collective intentionality just involving uh, simple things like two friends walking together. There's a point in which you're acquiescing to things that you as an individual might you know, in, there's a certain sense in which you'd say, well, maybe I would have preferred not to do that. So you decide, do we continue walking together further from my house <laughs> when I want to go home ultimately, or do I turn us around? But I mean, as a group, we just keep it going. So uh, she thinks it explains a lot of uh, social interaction in general. I I'm inclined to think so as well, but that's just not something I've studied with enough care that I want to sort of weigh in in a strong sense because of my uh, epistemic caution. Hmm. So have you studied anything that's, uh, that's related to that, that two friends walking along a sidewalk. Do you have anything to say about that? Uh, that one, not really about that one, but I, I mean, it, it, I've had experiences and I guess I've written in passing remarks and papers related to this about serving on committees. If you've ever served on a committee, there are, at one point you have to let the sort of you have to sort of stand behind the choices of the committee. So you're a member of the committee. You can't then leave the committee room and say, and I, I you know, I, <laughs> I disavow it all. You can do that, but then you're really behaving in a very socially deviant way, or like you're, you're sort of stepping out. There might be times where you really should do that, but there's a presumption that when you serve on a committee, you don't do that. So imagine a philosophy department hiring committee, and then yeah, they come up with a list of candidates and they leave the room. And then one of the committee members starts phoning other people and saying, that's not, you know, I thought you were better. Like, it would just be absurd that someone would behave like that. Like they would really be, I mean, it, there'd be legal problems, but there'd also be the problem of, they've really betrayed the committee. They've sat on the committee. There's some sort of norms about how the committee will reach decisions. And then there's a presumption that you'll stand behind these decisions as a collective. So that's an example of collective intentionality mm -hmm. is, uh, where we operate in these committees. And we, uh, it happens all the time in our lives. Like, you know, with, with uh, a committee is a more formal group, but we do it maybe informally as well. You might be going out with a number of friends and sort of deciding what type of restaurant you go to. You probably don't remember going out with friends given this lockdown stuff. So uh, maybe it's been a year since you've been to a restaurant. I don't know. Uh, but um, people used to go to restaurants. <laughs> uh, that, that's the sort of thing I have in mind. Yeah. Are all the restaurants closed in Denmark? Yeah, they are actually. The restaurants are except for takeout. So you, I, we can't go and uh, have a sit-down meal in a restaurant. And it's been a while since we could. Um, yeah, so. 
Wow. Yeah, Idaho is a little bit different than most states. Uh, yeah. The infection rate is really low here. But um, with that said, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to speak on the whether or not the restaurant should be closed or not. But yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, I mean, that's also kind of a part of that collective intentionality too, you know, in Denmark, right. You know, we're going to close the restaurants because we don't yeah. want people to get sick. We don't want the infection rate to spike up and mm -hmm. die. Right. So if mm -hmm. one restaurant were to deviate from that, that would be um, strange. Yes, it would. it would. I mean, we have this, it was just in the news, uh, the BBC about in France, there was some restaurant found with, a hundred people in it having dinner <laughs> without masks and what have you. And uh, it really is like, it's, it's not only sort of wrong because they're having something others can't have, but there is this sort of collective understanding that, mm. uh, you know, this is the way society works. Mm. In, a, in a way I'm reminded, like in America, there's a sort of, mentality of um, uh, people feeling sort of more entitlement to decide for themselves. So uh, uh, libertarianism, you might say. Now, there is a similar sort of, there is a libertarian strain in Danish society. There's a certain sense when people, people aren't very judgmental about people's life choices, but there's also here more of an understanding about collective agreements, like, you know, that, you know, uh, paying taxes. I mean, the way taxes, the tax system is run here, it, I think it would just be extremely difficult to uh, not pay your taxes. I, it might be impossible, I don't know. But it, 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 sort of tax evasion it would be much harder here than in the United States. And, but I, I think there's just even not the sort of, will to engage in it in the same way like because people don't see it as an affront or a injustice or an infringement of some sort of liberty or what have you i certainly don't yeah. maybe some types of taxes maybe i do yeah. but mm -hmm. uh, certainly not taxes in general mm -hmm. unless they were up to 50 percent or something like that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ours probably are. <laughs> I guess when you add in all the fees, it kind of, uh, you don't really think of that kind of thing. Because in, in Washington, the next state over, or I guess yeah. in North Idaho, Washington is the next state over. Yeah. But where I am, it's, it's Oregon. But in Washington, mm -hmm. there's a lot of fees. All the yeah. fees are way higher because they don't have income tax in, in Washington. But... Mm -hmm. Uh, like for example getting a driver's license or getting your uh, your car registered all mm -hmm. those are maybe three times or four times more expensive than they are in Idaho mm -hmm. so I guess they get the money out of you no matter what yeah <laughs> these things have to be paid for yes so with all that said do you do you have any recent conclusions, any 
um, new ideas that you've come up with within the last few, say, couple years? Well, um, I'll say two, I would like to talk about two different streams of research. One is yeah. uh, I was engaged in a um, study with a postdoc on um, retractions in science. And the first part of the project was merely empirical, collecting data on the rates of retraction in the journal Science. And just to give some perspective, one out of every 300 papers in Science is retracted. Um, and then what we've been doing is writing together uh, more uh, philosophical discussions about the inferences to be drawn about the data we found, because uh, it's quite a rich uh, body of data. But the other thing I've been engaged in a lot, uh, so I, I would like to take an opportunity to just mention it is, I've been doing a lot of research on Thomas Kuhn. So I wrote a book in 2011 on Kuhn's evolutionary social epistemology, which was looking at the relevance of Kuhn's late work for um, contemporary philosophers of science. Uh, and after that time, I began to do more historical work on Kuhn. So looking at, um, for example, how he came to write structure and the impact of structure on structure of scientific revolutions on, on intellectuals. Because here's a book that was an academic book that sold over a million copies, which is just astounding that a, a book would sell so much. And I mean, it still sells. Um, so uh, I, I've got a book coming out uh, either late this year, early next year, on Kuhn's writing of structure. It's called Kuhn's Intellectual Path, Charting the Structure of Scientific Revolutions. So that'll be coming out with Cambridge University Press. And then related, but distinct from that is uh, I edited a volume of papers, commissioned papers on Kuhn called Interpreting Kuhn. And that also is with Cambridge University Press. And that is, um, uh, just 12 scholars writing, reflecting on aspects of Kuhn's philosophy of science. I'm very excited about that. That comes out in June. Uh, and uh, there's very interesting contributions in, in the book. So uh, a very interesting paper, for example, by Paul Hoenigen-Hun, the leading uh, Kuhn scholar on Kuhn's metaphysics. And uh, there's another great paper by Lydia Patton on Kantian dimensions in Kuhn's philosophy. So there's uh, many good things in the book. That's just two examples of, of what's there. So Kuhn was an American philosopher, right? Yes. And what was, what was his main... Uh, contributions to philosophy? Well, what he's most known for is uh, like what in wide, uh, in the wider academic culture is the notion of paradigms and paradigm change. And 
paradigm change and paradigms has been picked up and used by people in many disciplines. I mean, it's even in popular culture. Uh, there's, uh, when I was uh, writing uh, the first book on Kuhn, one of the things I noted in it was it's gone from being an analyst term to being a, um, what's the, I'm blanking on the contrast class. It's the, the, um, it's, it's now integrated into scientific culture. Scientists use the term paradigm in papers. So an actor, that's it. <laughs> it's now an actor's term. So uh, the, the term paradigm is fully integrated into science. And sometimes they use it in the way Kuhn meant it, like as an exemplar, like the most fundamental sense in which he meant it. Now, Another way to interpret your question is what's Kuhn's legacy to philosophy of science? But one of the things I argue in the book that's forthcoming is that Kuhn left philosophers with what I call the problem of theory change. What he did was problematize theory change. So he, he, he drew it to our attention that it seems to be an inevitable part of the development of scientific knowledge, changes of theory. And real changes of theory involve fundamentally different views of the world. That's a problem. And it's certainly a problem for realists. <laughs> so I think, the, like what I argue in the book is the contemporary realism, anti-realism debate, which is focused on the epistemology of science, is a legacy of Kuhn's, like it's a consequence of Kuhn sort of, in a sense, bringing this problem to our attention and making us feel it's important enough to um, reflect on and try and address. So I think that's his, uh, one of his chief um, contributions to philosophy. And it wasn't, what he intended to be his chief contribution, I would say, but that is what uh, what he has left us with. What was his intention? Well, he wanted to give us, in part, a descriptive account of how science works. And central to his vision was that theoretical knowledge was not, or the growth of science was not strictly cumulative. It wasn't just this, story of marching ever closer. He thought you cannot reconcile that with the history of science if you go and read it. So that's what he wanted to leave us with, but he didn't see himself as sort of dumping a problem on philosophers of science. Like he didn't see as himself as sort of creating a problem, but I think that's how it's sort of been uh, that's the result of what he's published is that he's created a problem in a way or he's brought a problem to light and it's a problem that's interesting and that deserves our attention. So is a paradigm shift when say, um, say everyone believes the earth is flat, right? Mm -hmm. And then we evolve all of our beliefs and what we do around the earth being flat. And then some guy comes up 
and then he measures the the angle of the sun or whatever at one point and then he goes and do does that same thing at another point and then he says okay no the earth is actually round and then everyone starts believing that it's that what the paradigm shift is uh, sort of see i would want to cast it a different way like just for yeah. the sake of precision because i think um in his later writing, the things he called paradigm changes that most people were focusing on were theory changes. And what he has in mind are fundamental changes in the taxonomy of science. So or lexical changes, he called them, that violate the no overlap principle. So what he's saying is, um, think of a taxonomy, a scientific taxonomy, as cutting nature into kinds. And he's saying, when we change theories, we're cutting it in different places, and we're not grouping the same things in the same categories. So with the Copernican revolution, which is one of the easiest examples to illustrate this, uh, the term planet changes its meaning in both senses, both its extension and its intention. So for, let's just take the extension of the term planet. In Ptolemaic astronomy, the planets were contrasted with the fixed stars and the planets included the, uh, the sun, the moon, um, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. So those things you can see with the naked eye that deviate mm -hmm. from the motion of the fixed stars, which seem to move in 24 hours around us. With the Copernican revolution, they changed what counted as, what was regarded as a planet and what was not. So Copernicus regarded he no longer regarded the sun as a planet. The sun was a star. It was the center of the cosmos. The moon became a satellite of the earth, a type of phenomenon, a type, a kind that didn't exist before. And then the planets now included Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter and Saturn. Now notice Earth has joined the group. Earth wasn't a planet in the Ptolemaic system. It's the center of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. So and what we find is the meaning of planet change, the meaning in that other sense, the uh, intention as well. So the intention of planet in the Ptolemaic theory is a planet is um, it's contrasted with the fixed stars. So it's the wandering star. That's the sort of translation of planet. In the Copernican theory, a planet is a satellite of the sun. Mm. So the meaning has changed. Now, what obscures the fact that this is so revolutionary is the fact that we still use the same term planet and star and all that. But we don't really, we have to realize that it, they're fundamental, they're used in fundamentally different ways. And what Kuhn's suggesting is the things he called paradigm changes or theory, theory changes in structure, 
involve taxonomic changes of this kind. So we have a similar change. I don't want to get into details of this, but uh, when we leave Newton's physics behind, because mass and energy in the new physics are trans translatable. You can translate mass into energy. You couldn't do that in Newtonian mechanics. So th the meaning of the terms have really changed fundamentally. So it's in that sense, we're living and working as scientists in a different world before and after a revolution, because we're cutting it up differently. So we're carving nature at different joints. And that's what gives us better technology. It, it probably does. Or, or, or at any rate, um, with each of these, we seem to be able to advance our technology. But some technological developments, remember, seem to happen quite separate from uh, theoretical um, understanding. So there's famous cases. I gather there's some uh, group of Inuit in, the, in Alaska who have these sort of supremely designed boat, like kayak type boats that, that are uh, that are really effective for the water conditions they're used in. And um, the people who have built these for hundreds of years don't have deep theoretical knowledge about aerodynamics. Mm -hmm but somehow through trial and error, they've created a technology that is, uh, you know, if not optimal, at least highly ideal, right? So, uh, so a lot of technology can happen sort of independent of theoretical developments, but you're right. Like as our theoretical understanding advances, we clearly, it opens up new doors for development technology. That's for sure. Or at least with the with the unobservables, right? Because with uh, with the theory of relativity, that's what allows our GPSs to even be accurate at all. Mm -hmm. Or E equals MC squared that led to the atomic bomb, uh, nuclear energy, yeah, things like that. But um, I don't know. I guess we'll see. Yes. So, do you have anything else you'd like to say? Leave us off with. Uh, at the moment, I can't think of it, but uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity to uh, have this interview and share some of my philosophy. Yeah, I really appreciate you doing this. That was very interesting. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right, that's uh, that's Into the Absurd, episode 27 with Dr. K. Brad Ray. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.